We are going to read from the Bible passage that Ed Surrey will be preaching from later. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 7. Um, we're going to read the whole of that chapter. I'm going to read half now, and Manium's going to come and read the rest later. Now, Ed is going to uh, talk to us about Crew West, which is the mission that he's involved in. Um, and we'll hear more about Crew West in a minute. But Ed is also going to preach to us from God's Word uh, from Luke chapter 7 and talking about faith is dot, dot, dot. So he's going to tell us uh, more about faith uh, from that passage in Luke 7. So as you're Luke 7, beginning at verse 1, I'm going to read down to verse 23. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now that he is Jesus. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pled with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to, no, I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found one of such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through all the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, that is, John's disciples, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, 
and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news to preach to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let us continue in our reading from the uh, book of Luke, the gospel, according to Luke, reading chapter 7, reading from verse 24. Hear the word of the Lord. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, 
the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. It is a, uh, a real joy and privilege to be with you this morning. Thank you so much again for having me. Uh, it's wonderful to see uh, the partners that uh, are behind Crew West. It's great to see some of our leaders, as I said. And, uh, and uh, if you want to join us and become a leader, you don't have to be as good looking as Yano and James here. Uh, it can be anyone. Uh, and it really can be anyone. People sometimes think that to work with teenagers, you have to be kind of cool and young and fun. And uh, I obviously show that that isn't true. Uh, working with teenagers is much simpler than you think. You don't have to be down with all the cool language and the lingo, especially uh, because it changes so quickly, uh, especially when it comes to like text message language. Have you ever got a text message from a teenager? It, utter gibberish. Sometimes someone can send me something that just says N-W-B-R-B-L-M-A-O-L-O-L-X-O-X and it's utter gibberish. It just looks like sometimes when I get a text from a teenager, it just looks like a Wi-Fi password sometimes. It's absolute nonsense. And you think to yourself, what on earth do these words mean? BRB. It means be right back. But it's the same number of syllables. You haven't saved yourself any time by saying BRB versus saying be right back. Don't get me started on WWW, which is way more syllables than World Wide Web. What do these letters mean that these teenagers use on this, uh, the, these text messages they send you? It's not just me. I work with a, a younger member of our, of our team. She's 20. Uh, she was getting texts for years and years that said SMH. She thought it meant so much hate uh, for a long time until she found out just a couple of weeks ago it means shaking my head, which is news for me. I thought it meant Sydney Morning Herald. <laughs> what on earth do these words mean? You have to work out what a word means if we're going to use it. And teenagers, they change so quickly, uh, but that's okay. Anyone can help out. Uh, with teenagers. You just need a Bible and a pulse. It's great. Because in all areas of life, we have to know what a word means if we're going to use it correctly, especially when it comes to something like religion. Now, it could be that you're sure you're a Christian, or you're not sure if you're a Christian, or you're sure you're not a Christian here this morning. We still have to work out what the words mean that we are going to use if we're going to have some time together thinking about religion. So let's look at a word. Let's just look at the word faith. It's so simple. But what do we mean by it? Does it mean what, say, Richard Dawkins, the known scientist, thinks it means? That it's, it's faith in spite of evidence. So you've seen the evidence and you say, no, I'm going to believe something totally different to that. That's what he would say it means. 
Uh, does faith mean hope? Just, oh, I've got faith in you, you say to your child as they, as they leave the house to take an exam. Uh, is, is faith a desirable object? Someone says, oh, I wish I had your faith. It's like them saying, oh, I wish I had your car. Is it something like that? Or is faith a muscle that can be exercised so you can have someone with strong faith and someone with weak faith? We have to get it right because this is, this is a church. This is a place of faith, a people of faith gathered around the Christian faith. Is faith, uh, I was talking about, uh, you know, if, if one was to go to a mosque who's grown up in a Christian home, that's how alien uh, the Christian faith is to most teenagers today. Is, are all faiths basically the same thing? whether it's Islamic, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever it may be. Uh, is that what faith is? It's just someone who's religious versus someone who has none. Are they all the same? So to help us iron out what we mean by faith, as you kick off this uh, um, Learning from Jesus and the Gospel series you've got coming up, this chapter 7 is going to serve as a really helpful thing uh, about faith. And it's written by a guy called Luke, who was a doctor 2,000 years ago. Uh, and it's written by Luke, and so they've helpfully called it Luke. And it's all about faith in Jesus. And not faith in a moral code or a set of religious practices or, as Disney would have us believe, faith in ourselves. As Luke gathers all the evidence and orders his material as he promises to do to give us certainty, I wonder if he's compiled chapter 7 set of stories together to demonstrate what faith in Jesus looks like. Because look, have a look at verse 9 if you can find it. Verse 9, he marvels and said, I tell you, not even in Israel I have not found such faith. Then he ends the story by saying in chapter 7 verse, uh, what is it, right at the end, verse 50, your faith has saved you. No greater faith in Israel with the first story, your faith has saved you in the last story. I wonder if this is Luke showing us what faith looks like. So that we can spot it in the wild. So we can perhaps know what faith looks like today. And Luke wants to show us faith and show us that it it changes our death, our mind, and our heart. Faith in Jesus changes our death, our mind, and our heart. And that means that if, if that's happened for you, you know you've got faith in Jesus. So firstly, faith in Jesus means a changed death. We see in these first two stories that faith in Jesus means a changed death. Jesus finishes his sermon in chapter 6 and heads to his hometown now of Capernaum. And the top soldier of a small town is a centurion. He has a servant who's highly valued. Uh, This centurion's assistant, or if you've seen the office, assistant to the centurion, uh, is ill and about to die, verse 2. So the centurion sends some Jewish religious leaders to Jesus. And these delegates from the centurion plead earnestly with Jesus. They, they think that the centurion's good deeds will be able to change his death. Verse 4, ah, he's worthy for you to do this. Verse 5, but he loves our nation. He's, he's the one who built us our synagogue. Well, Jesus hears their plea. And so this band of Jesus and Jewish leaders make their way to the centurion's servant. Uh, they're not far from the house. Some friends of the centurion come out to tell Jesus another message. Now, why is this soldier, this centurion, sending all these messengers out? Is he lazy? Is he too important? No, verse 6, here's his message. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
Therefore, I, I didn't presume to come to you. The centurion, he doesn't think that his good deeds can earn life or force Jesus' hand. The opposite. Not that he's worthless, but unworthy to come to Jesus. It's like in primary school when you really fancied someone and you thought, I'm too unworthy to go to the girl directly. I'll send my mate to go and tell her that I fancy her. Well, for this day anyway. Uh, And so even the thought of talking to this person is so outrageous, you won't go yourself. And this centurion then has understood something so vital here. He has faith but not in himself, not in his good deeds. He may well have built a synagogue, but he doesn't care. He has faith in Jesus. And that only when he trusts Jesus will it change your death, because only Jesus can do that. Verse 7, the centurion says these great words, but say the word, my servant will be healed. This centurion, he knows how powerful words can be. Verse 8, he says, go and do that. People go and do that. The centurion knows he can change people's lives, but he knows that only Jesus can change people's deaths. And Jesus, amazed at the faith of the centurion, uses this as a teaching aid to the crowd. I tell you, not even in Israel have I, found, have I not found such faith. Well, the friends go back and find the servant well. Life has been snatched from the jaws of death. No medication needed. He had sickness. He doesn't suffer from long sickness. Uh, He doesn't have something that drags on for months and months. Jesus' word has power, power to give life straight away. Faith in Jesus means a changed death. We see it again in the next little story, in the little town of Nain. Uh, With a crowd around him, Jesus passes by a funeral procession uh, by the town gate. Uh, This woman has already buried her husband and now she buries her only son. The town is mourning with her. But nothing, nothing can console a widow burying her child. So when the Lord sees her, he says to her, verse 13, have a look down. I'm sorry, love. The wages of sin is death. So death is just what happens when you sin. Of course he doesn't say that. He says, have a look down, verse 13. Look, death is just a part of life. It's a natural, good cycle of picking off the weak members of the herd. It's just evolution. Science is in a meaningless universe. No, of course he doesn't say that. Jesus says, look, the bad we do in a previous life is played out in this life. So you and he must deserve this somehow. I'm sorry. No, he doesn't. Verse 13, for real this time. This is what Jesus says. Do not weep. When he sees her, he has compassion on her and says to her, do not weep. Now, 10 out of 10 for Jesus' compassion here, it's great that his heart goes out to her. But to say to a widow at the funeral of her son, don't weep, don't cry, it's like telling someone who's just run a marathon, hey, don't sweat, buddy. Uh, Or or popping into King Eddie's uh, child hospital and saying uh, to a woman in labour, look, would you mind just keeping it down a bit? It's ridiculous. Saying to this widow, don't weep, don't cry. Are you you mad? It's great he's got compassion, but he's not great on the people skills. Unless Jesus can so fundamentally change death that crying is actually the wrong thing to do at this moment. That it's no longer the appropriate response for her, for this widow at the funeral of her son. That's the only circumstances under which don't cry is the kind thing to say. And so verse 14, uh, he came up 
he touched the buyer and the bearers stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Which is then followed by this utterly strange sentence. If you've been in church for more than a year, this won't sound strange, but it should. And the dead man sat up (laughs) and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. The dead man sat up. Again, it's Jesus' words that do the work. Again, it's instantaneous. Again, it's not based on the goodness of the person in need. Instead, Jesus has compassion on those confronted with the ugly reality of death. Faith in Jesus means a changed death. Now, of course, these simpletons from 2,000 years ago, not owning a test tube or having YouTube, they shrug their shoulders and say, well, another dead person's come back to life. It must be a Tuesday. Of course not. They saw death way more than we do. There's a reason we say bless you when you sneeze. It's because up until about 14 minutes ago, when you sneezed, you were basically going to die by dinner that night. And so we wanted to bless you on your way to heaven. Uh, Up until now, people knew way more about death than we do. And they know that dead people don't sit up and start talking. And so, verse 16, how were they filled with? Fear seized them all. It's terrifying. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people and this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. With Jesus, the shape of death is changed. With faith in Jesus, the shape of death is changed. It's no longer a stop sign or an exitless box. Faith in Jesus means we come to Jesus and we say, hey, can you change death for me too, please? Can you change my graveyard into a garden? Death is different with faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus means a changed death. Faith in Jesus means a changed mind as well. Faith in Jesus means a changed mind. The other kind of text message I get that makes me rather alarmed is uh, the one from the, from the police. Uh, I hope it's not just me who gets these ones. I haven't really checked with many people, but the ones that say there's, there's someone missing, uh, I'm, I hope it's not just me because otherwise there's a lot of pressure on just this one guy. And I don't know whether I'm, because we don't have these in England, I don't know whether I'm supposed to be out there on the manhunt with them and they've just texted me and be like, that's sorry guy, he's just watching TV, let's get him out there. He's watching all these documentaries about murder mysteries, let's get him actually on the case. Uh, you know, there's some, uh, there's some seven-year-old in a black tracksuit and a hat who's wandering around and we live near a hospital and so there's often people wandering around in hospitals. What I'd love just once is the police to let us know they found them. Because uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's thousands of people just wandering around, lost, uh, just one little update. Just saying, hey, we found the guy, all good. You can go back to your TV. Uh, That's great. Uh, Because a manhunt like that feels like a big endeavor and and they've got all these little identification codes that helps you know who it is. And there's a manhunt going on as well when it comes to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the big dog just before Jesus. And John the Baptist says, hey, uh, to two of his guys, there's lots of people being sent to Jesus in this whole thing. Uh, Two of his guys, uh, they come to Jesus on a manhunt and say, look, are are you the one? Or is there someone else that's the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the hope of all Israel? And so Jesus reminds these Jews of their police manhunt text message. He says, look, hey, look, Jews, you're currently looking for a Messiah, a man of no real physical description, wandering around David's town. 
He'll heal the sick, give sight to the blind, the deaf hear, the dead will be raised, and the good news will be preached by him. If you see this man, great news, verse 23, you're blessed so long as you don't trip over him. That's the police text message in those days. So these men and John the Baptist want to have faith in Jesus. What does Jesus do to help them have faith? Does he tell them to summon it from within? Does he tell them that faith is just something you have or don't? No, he, he reasons with them. He engages their mind for them to have faith. He quotes ancient texts. He presents evidence and proof that he is the one to have faith in, that he is trustworthy. To get to the heart or the gut where faith belongs, he goes through the mind. Sometimes when people say, I I wish I had your faith, we can respond, well, to have my faith, you have to see my evidence. So Dawkins is wrong. It's not faith in spite of the evidence, but faith from the evidence. Faith in the evidence. And even when John's followers have gone back to John, verse 24, Jesus keeps persuading the crowd through their minds. John the Baptist was special, he says. That's why you all went out in the desert to see him. And Jesus is even more special. John was the warm-up act, the trailer, the starter. Jesus is the headline, the whole movie, the main course. And while tax collectors and Roman soldiers and many others saw the evidence and came to John to be washed, the Pharisees, they didn't. The experts in the law rejected John, and so they rejected Jesus. It wasn't a lack of proof, but a lack of change of mind. They just weren't willing to do it. So Jesus compares that generation of Pharisees to a bunch of kids in the marketplace, singing a song, verse 32. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. Jesus is saying, we did happy music, and you weren't happy. We did sad music. And you weren't sad. We showed you the evidence. You didn't respond. John didn't party and he said he had a demon. Jesus did party and he said he was a drunk. We can't win here. The evidence was there in John and in Jesus, but you did not change your mind. You didn't have faith. You wouldn't have a change of mind. We've seen this over the last 20 years. 20 years ago when I was in school, Jesus was too moral. So people reject him. Now Jesus isn't moral enough. So people reject him. So people reject both sides of the coin, wherever they're coming from. And they say it's because of a lack of evidence. But here we see it's a lack of change of mind. Faith in Jesus is a mind changed on the evidence. So if your mind is changed... You have faith. You're trusting him. And that means that you have a changed death. Uh, This changed mind is exactly what our last story has in it. Faith in Jesus means, thirdly and lastly, a changed heart. A changed death. A changed mind. Now, thirdly and finally, a changed heart. Uh, Jesus is parting again in this last story about faith. He's at a Pharisee's house, a guy named Simon. And they're reclining at the table. Uh, heads would be in the middle of the, of the kind of reclining sofa table area with heads on elbows, feet on the outside way uh, away from the food. Uh, and without windows and in a small town, meals and houses were far more public than they would be today. And so at this meal, verse 37, have a look down at verse 37. Uh, uh, Behold, a woman of the city, it's a strange phrase, who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she bought an alabaster flask of anointment. 
And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This story has always stuck in people's minds when they hear it. And not just because it's the only time we ever hear the word alabaster, uh, but because it's so, it's so intimate, it's so warm, it's so lovely. But not for the host, verse 39. <laughs> if, this, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. It's disgusting, he says. It's disgraceful. Doesn't Jesus know who this woman is? Prophet, my foot. And the danger is we are like Simon the Pharisee here. We point the finger at the sinful woman, wondering, what's Jesus doing with her? It's a struggle for me too. That we do have a tendency towards decency. And so Jesus tells him and us a story. Here's the story, verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, uh, the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which loved him more? Simon answered, and I love the way he's, uh, he's a little bit hesitant to give the right answer. The one, I suppose, who, I suppose that he, he cancelled the larger debt. Now, I've no, I've no idea if he's hesitant because he realizes he's about to look like a real wally in front of everyone and then that get written down in the best-selling book of all time. Uh, but Jesus unpacks the story here. He says, hey, look, you know the two debts and the loving more thing? Let me tell you another comparison, Jesus says. Hey, Simon, you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my, my feet with tears. At Simon, I didn't get a kiss from you, but she hasn't stopped. At Simon, you didn't give me oil for my nice clean head, but... Uh, she has, uh, and that's seen by your little love for me. That, sorry, uh, she's poured oil on my, on my feet. Uh, you have not been forgiven, seen for your little love for me. You won't do the hard spiritual work and the hard spiritual accounting that means you realize you're in debt. It may not be as much as her for sure, but it's more than you can repay. So a man in debt is a dead man. But you won't take an honest, hard look at yourself or me. You're too busy judging her rather than looking at yourself or Jesus. But her, she has many sins, verse 47. I don't ignore her sin, Jesus says, but I do forgive her. She knows who I am, who she is, and she comes to me for forgiveness. She knows she has a debt too large to pay herself, just like you, and so she comes to Jesus. She trusts him to forgive them all. She has faith, and faith in Jesus like that means a changed heart. Therefore, verse 47, I tell you, her many sins are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. If the centurion at the start of this uh, lovely set of stories in chapter 7 is the model of great faith, this woman is the model of great sin and forgiveness and love. Because three times she hears it. Her sins have been forgiven, verse 47. You are forgiven, verse 48. Your faith has saved you, verse 50. And that then changes her heart to then love Jesus lots. Maybe some here today, like this sinful woman, need to hear from Jesus' lips three times. You are forgiven. 
If you've come to Jesus, you are forgiven. Just the smallest grain of faith and you are saved. And a few commentators have highlighted that this alabaster jar, very expensive, would have been a gift from a gentleman friend. There are younger people amongst us, so I'll keep it PG. Uh, But it means something when they say she's a woman of the city. A woman of the night, we might call her. And for her to take this very expensive alabaster jar, this gift, uh, to pour it out like this and get rid of it, no longer to dress herself up, to go out into the city, into the night. For her to pour it all away like this is saying, now that I've met Jesus, I'll never need to do this again. I'll never need to cover myself up again, to hide again, to go out there and search for love. Because now I've got Jesus. We think faith is something like this. Look, if you work real hard, if you buckle down, pull up your socks and have, you know, faith, maybe, just maybe he'll forgive you. He'll give you a chance. But this couldn't be clearer. We are dead. We've got a debt we cannot pay. But come to Jesus. Be forgiven all your debt. And that will change your heart to love him. That's faith. That's faith in Jesus. It means a changed heart. And Luke, with great economy of words, gives a hint here of how this will happen. You see, in any other room... In any other room that she walks into, she is the one under question, under fire, doubted. In every other room, people will shout at her, who do you think you are? And whisper behind her back. She'd never leave a room in peace. But in this room, notice who the crowd ends up questioning and grilling and doubting. Here, only one person is asked who they think they are, and it's not her. It's Jesus. It's like the scorn in the room, the doubt Uh, The guilt in the room has shifted from her. She's no longer under blame, but it's shifted to him. Her faith in Jesus has led her to him. And with him by her side, he leaves with people asking. Not her, he leaves with people asking, who does he think he is? Normally, people questioning, who does she think she is? What does her faith in, in Jesus get her with him by her side? Well, faith in Jesus means that for the first time in a long time, She leaves in peace. That's faith in Jesus. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, assurance is hard to come by. We doubt so much in this world. We doubt ourselves. We doubt institutions. We doubt the people around us. We doubt the truth of stuff we read everywhere. Assurance is hard to come by. And we're trained, Heavenly Father, to have uh, assurance in ourselves. Help that not to be so. Help us not to trust even our faith. Help us instead to trust Jesus only, with our eyes fixed on him, with a great uh, crowd of witnesses that have urged us on for generations and generations, and indeed now urge us on into the week ahead. Help us to have our eyes fixed on him, that we may go in peace. Amen.